The goal of this series was to answer the question, what did ancient and archaic humans look like and how do scientists figure that out? And we have looked into many different perspectives on that question from clothing to genetics. But now I pose a new question. How did ancient and archaic humans see themselves and the world around them? Considering we cannot speak to ancient and archaic humans and they left no written work, it is impossible to know the exact answer to that question. However, they did leave remnants of life through their eyes in cave art. One specific site of interest is El Castillo Cave in Spain. The site features many paintings of varying size and subject, including negative space handprints. El Castillo, like many things in anthropology, is a site of controversy. Graduate student Amy Chase is doing her research on El Castillo Cave, focusing on the pigments used to paint. Today, I sit down with her to discuss the cave's content and controversy, as well as the creators of the art and the lives they lived. Hello, thank you so much for talking with me today. No problem. Yeah, um, so just diving straight into some of your field work, can you describe the paintings at El Castillo Cave in Spain, you know, their content, the size, how many of them there are? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, the cave is really unique. So it's um, it's got about a kilometer of uh, different paintings and engravings. So there's actually oh, well into the hundreds of uh, different images uh, in the cave. Uh, and it ranges sort of from uh, very small in size, so, um, you know, an inch or smaller, to um, quite large, I, I would say a few feet sort of thing. <laughs> so it depends on what you consider to be sort of an image. Uh, some people consider an entire panel, so an entire sort of section of uh, of a cave wall, for example, to be an image in that the images on a cave wall sometimes kind of interact with each other. And so sometimes uh, some archaeologists or some researchers would consider that to be sort of one image, depending on, you know, if, if we can tell when it was created, for example, um, and what the sort of themes of the image are. So uh, in terms of kind of breaking it down into individual images, it's a little bit more difficult. Some of them are sort of superimposed on each other, um, but definitely there's there's easily hundreds, maybe even thousands of different images. And there are a lot of different images of wildlife. So things like ibex, bison, deer, like reindeer, uh, that sort of thing. And then there's a lot of non-figurative signs is what we call them or geometric signs. And it's difficult to sort of explain what that is, but it includes things um, sort of like what we would call tectiforms or sort of strange shapes that almost look like houses. There are strange shapes that sort of look like, and I'm not comparing them to houses, I'm just saying that this is what they, they sort of look like. There are sort of lines and dots everywhere. Um, very interesting. There's there's a shape called a reniform that's basically looks almost like a kidney bean. Um, there are a lot of different kinds of shapes, and then there are also uh, handprints, and that is what we, even though it's the shape of a hand, we would still consider that to be a non-figurative sign. Um, and usually, those handprints are 
what we would call negative handprints, meaning that um, it's a, an outline of a hand rather than a positive handprint, which would be sort of the, the paint is in the shape of the hand, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering if you talk a little bit about um, like approximately when are these paintings dated to? Yeah. So um, that's also got a huge range to it. So, and it's a little bit of a controversial situation, um, which I can explain in a moment, but the latest paintings in the cave um, are roughly, I would say about 10,000 years old. Um, so those are the sort of most recent ones. They date to the Magdalenian, so maybe 11,000 years old. And then there are uh, kind of a continuous stream of paintings uh, all the way through to the Ignatian. So um, roughly, uh, roughly about 35,000, 36,000 years old. Um, and then we have the possibility of some older paintings in the cave. Um, and that's where it gets a little bit controversial. Basically, the issue here with, with dating cave paintings, and this isn't just with El Castillo, this is with um, any cave paintings, uh, is that there are kind of a limited range of techniques you can use for dating. And I don't actually do the dating myself, um, but I do know about it, so I'm going to talk about it. So one thing that we do when we're talking about the deep past is we, we use radiocarbon dating. But you cannot use radiocarbon dating unless you have carbon. So you have to have some form of carbon to do radiocarbon dating. So sometimes, for example, in other cave sites, um, we can date uh, a painting or a drawing if they were using charcoal because there's carbon in that. And so it's quite easy to at least tell when was the charcoal created. But with, especially with red paintings, um, things that are not using charcoal, we're talking about minerals usually. So usually it's something like ochre, um, hematite, which is a type of ochre, iron oxides that they get from the ground. And minerals are difficult to date. You cannot use radiocarbon dating. So one technique that's been used, which is somewhat controversial sometimes, is called uranium thorium dating or uranium series dating. And what that does is it, it dates the calcite layer that grows over top of the painting. So over time, caves sort of shed a little bit of, of calcite. And sometimes you can even um, you can even date the calcite layer underneath a painting and then over top of a painting um, if enough time has passed. And then you could potentially get a date range for when that, that painting was created. Uh, the problem is, it has to be very specific conditions for it to work properly. And so uh, if it's in a what's called an open system, essentially the idea is that it cannot be reliable. The dates, the dates that are kind of coming out of that cannot be reliable because I, I think essentially what it is is that calcite can, can be leached from other sources. And so you cannot rely entirely on those dates because it might make it look older or younger than it actually is. And so what had happened is in 2012 at El Castillo, um, this researcher, Alistair Pike, uh, published a really famous paper redating or dating a bunch of different paintings from different sites, including El Castillo. 
And one of the paintings that were, was dated using this technique, uranium series dating, was a dot at El Castillo. And he dated it to just under 41,000 years. And what that means is that potentially that's a time period when Neanderthals could have been at the site. And up until that point, it was kind of widely believed that Neanderthals made no cave art, nothing that we know of. And so this kind of caused this huge hubbub of, um, of controversy where he didn't say Neanderthals definitely created this. It was just kind of, um, here's a possibility of what could have been happening. And it was at a time period where we don't know exactly who was occupying the site. So it could have been our species, it could have been Neanderthals, could have been both of us together. And uh, when you're looking at deep time like that, you can't really get down to the sort of hundred year mark kind of thing or, or 20 years or something. So it's, uh, it's sort of difficult to say, you're kind of looking at thousands of years at a time and going, well, what exactly is happening at this point in time? So since that famous um, publication came out in 2012, people have been kind of trying to add to this debate or sort of get involved in this debate somehow, including myself, um, and, and to try and sort of contribute to, did Neanderthals actually create art? Uh, is this a possibility? And there's been a number of ways that people have been doing that. But one of the main ways for some people has been to uh, attack the dating technique. That's what makes it kind of controversial. Yeah. Um, so I know that one of the like the specific research that you are doing to contribute to this is um, analyzing the pigments used. Can you briefly describe the technique of how this is done, such as how you collect the samples and the methods in which you observe them? Sure. Yeah. So uh, important to give you a little bit of context here, I guess. So the cave that I just mentioned, El Castillo, it's a kilometer of, of actual cave inside. But what we don't, we don't talk about this often, but cave people weren't actually living inside of caves. A cave is not really a place where you'd want to be living. Um, it was an interesting place to, to go into for short periods of time. And I, for whatever reason, it was a great place for many, many groups of people to create art. Um, but where they actually would have been living is, is what we would call a rock shelter right outside of the caves. It's literally right outside the entryway to the cave. And it would provide shelter for, for groups of people. So that would be where they would have like a hearth. That would be where they would be doing most of their activities. They would be having a fire, cooking their food, that sort of thing. And the reason this is important to note is because when we, uh, when we as archaeologists talk about excavating, um, we're not usually excavating inside of a cave sometimes, but usually you're excavating the area where the people would be living. And so at El Castillo, we have occupation layers going back to about 130,000 years and of different species. And what that means is that the place where they were living in the rock shelter has been dug up for over 100 years now has been dug up. And there's 20 meters of deposits going down. So that means 20 meters of different, um, different sort of dirt layers or, um, you know, uh, soil deposits of where different groups would have been living. And so there's actually this giant hole at the, at the entryway to the cave, which is really interesting. And that's where 
we find all sorts of materials that they would have been using. And one of the things that we find there is pigments. And so when I say I've been analyzing pigments from El Castillo, I've been analyzing the pigments that come from the occupation layers. So we, the good thing about that is that we can actually tell sort of when, when they were created or when they were used, um, because at the very least we have um, sort of a, a reference point. So um, what's on top, what's underneath, but also because of all the different things that are going on in each layer, we have faunal remains, which contain carbon. So we know that we can radiocarbon date them. Um, and we, we can use other dating techniques. So many different researchers have used different dating techniques to figure out a, a rough kind of time period for each layer. So we have layers um, in the Mousterian, which is well known to be Neanderthal layers. And we have layers in the Ordination, which is sort of what we're looking at when modern humans are coming in. Those are the earlier modern human uh, layers. And those are the two time periods that I'm most interested in because I want to know kind of what's going on when, when we started to occupy these sites um, and when Neanderthals were hanging out there as well. Um, so <clears throat> what I've done um, with a team of people in Spain is actually take the pigments from the layers that have been, they've been sort of hanging around in a museum for a long time. This is kind of what archeologists do. We dig things up and then we write them down and then we put them in the museum and hope for someone else will eventually look at them, which is lovely. Um, so we've got all these different pigments um, from various excavations. So from a hundred years ago, from 40 years ago, and even from 15, 20 years ago, and they date to different time periods. And the first thing that I did was, of course, look at them under a microscope to try and figure out, do we have any evidence that they were sort of grating bits off or cutting pieces off? Um, so thing, what they would have done if they were creating paints is a lot of the time to, you, you would find kind of abrasion bits or abrasion facets where they would kind of be sort of grating little bits off to make it into a powder is the best way I can describe that. Um, so I was looking for those sorts of signs of manipulation. And then, um, you know, of course, photography, things like that, um, really having a good, a good examination of the colors and, um, you know, kind of comparing them all to each other. But the most important part of what we've been doing is called Raman spectroscopy. And it's a, uh, I've been working in the physics department. So it's been a lot of very scientific techniques, but the basic, the basics of it is it's a non-destructive technique, which is really important when we're doing things like this, because the materials are very precious when we're talking about 70,000 year old materials, we don't want to be destroying them if we can avoid it. And Essentially, I've been telling people it's essentially that we're shooting lasers at stuff, which is kind of exciting, but it's a light scattering technique. So the light source is a laser. And what it does is it, it's based on the relationship of the laser light to the, to the molecules in the substance. And so from shooting lasers using Raman technology, it actually can tell us a lot about what is the substance, what is it made up of, and what is the concentration of it. So how much of it is in there. Uh, so it gives us what's called a like a Raman scatter, and it shows us 
sort of like a little graph and it shows us peaks of how, how large are these peaks. Um, and the larger the peak usually means that there's more of something in a substance, for example. Um, and so that's how we can tell, is this pigment made up of hematite? Is it made up of uh, carbon? Is it made up of all sorts of different things? So that's what I've been working on. And we've been doing a little bit of that in the cave as well, um, non-destructively on, uh, on the actual cave paintings as well. And so the plan is, and it's in the kind of early to middle stages at this point, because we've just gathered a lot of data, um, but to compare the different samples with what's on the cave wall, and then also to compare um, so we can find out what is what are the pigments made up of and are they different between time periods? That's a big one. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, so I know you mentioned that there are Neanderthal layers. Have you found pigments? Are there pigments in those layers? There are, yes. Yeah. Um, the hard part about this, and I mean, it's, it's not, so we have a lot of evidence in Europe, especially in general, of Neanderthals using pigments. Like we know that they, they sought out pigments. Um, sometimes they were extremely specific with pigment sourcing. So um, for example, trekking about four kilometers to pick out specific pigments of specific colors, they, they were definitely, there was a lot going on there. <laughs> they were very picky about their pigments. Um, and so it's not unusual that we have pigments from the Neanderthal layers. Um, the, the question at this point is, were they being used by the Neanderthals and for what? So you could potentially have um, just mineral pigments that, that were just deposited into the ground that they didn't touch at all. They sometimes occur naturally, for example, in the ground. Um, in this situation, I think there's more evidence that they were probably being used, but we're kind of working through that right now. <laughs> but uh, we do have a lot of evidence of Neanderthals using pigments. And, and the, the thing to note about that is that it's not necessarily that they were painting or that they were painting on cave walls. We also know that our species currently and in the past has used pigments like this for many different reasons. And we have some evidence of that with Neanderthals as well. But um, so pigments would have been really useful for things like decorating the body, um, decorating clothing or uh, sort of personal ornaments. So things like jewelry, for example. Um, there's also some kind of utilitarian purposes or uses that they, they would have been able to get out of it. So for example, um, perhaps use as, as um, a bug deterrent or as a, a sun protecting. So like, a, like a, an ancient sunscreen basically. So there's a lot of different possibilities there. Um, so just because we have the evidence that, it, that they might've been using it doesn't mean we know what they were using it for, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, and this is kind of just my own curiosity. Um, I've heard that Neanderthals had like a thing for the color black. Is there any evidence of those in like pigments that are found? Um, I mean, I haven't really heard that. Uh, there are some sites where there are a lot of black pigments being used by Neanderthals. Um, there's also sites where there's a lot of red. I mean, you have to keep in mind that during the Paleolithic, we're really not talking about a lot of different colors. So mineral pigments that occur naturally are usually red, yellow, 
brown or black. Um, and charcoal obviously is one of the black, um, black ones that we can make. Um, we know that our species and probably Neanderthals were using heat treatments to uh, change the colors of pigments. Uh, so for example, if you had a, a light red, you could probably heat that to a darker red or um, just to create different, but you're not gonna, it's, you're not gonna make it blue. <laughs> like it's not, that's not something that, that came until later. Um, so there really weren't a lot of options, but considering that there was a lot of really interesting things done. Uh, so I wouldn't say necessarily that they had a preference for the color black. I would say that it's kind of different for um, different sites in different regions, but um, they definitely show a preference in general. So being able to sort of decide, hey, I want this, this fancy color, I'm going to walk four kilometers to get it, or I'm going to heat up this, this particular pigment to get it sort of thing. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this actually leads straight into my next question. It's kind of a pretty big speculation, but um, thinking about the colors of the paintings in the cave, do you think that they were chosen intentionally or were they just chosen based off of availability? Um, I think that's kind of difficult. I think I would probably say for the most part that they were chosen specifically because of preference. Um, and I don't, I mean, that's just speculation, but I mean, if you really think about what life would have been like, let's say 30,000 years ago or when Neanderthals were around, which is a little bit um, earlier than that, to go into a cave and create a cave painting, you're looking at, we, they don't have electricity like we do. They don't have, they're not running an extension cord in there, right? So they are making an oil lamp out of a shell or a rock. They are collecting probably animal fat and making uh, a way to, to create that lamp that's gonna last for a while because they can't just go into a cave and light a huge fire and, and hope that it doesn't um, take away all of their oxygen and, and kill them, right? Um, sometimes they were able to have a fire in there, but usually we're talking about people walking around with little lamps and to go into the cave, would have been treacherous a lot of the time. So it, caves are drippy and dirty and slippery. And some of the spaces that were being kind of painted in were not easy to access, um, a little bit dangerous even in a lot of ways. Things that, you know, even in Al Castillo, there's this kind of th this very end chamber that's passed where we're allowed to take kind of the public. And, um, it's almost like this little platform that is surrounded by a sort of large cliff or a drop off. And when you look at it, there's all these dots, all these red dots that were painted. And you just kind of think, and, and they were painted on either side of this little cliff. So someone was climbing around in a way where I would have been terrified of dying if that was me. Um, and they're, you know, they're doing this for whatever their purpose is. And so it's not an easy thing for them to be doing and creating the pigment, they're, they're sourcing it somewhere, right? So even if they found the pigment nearby, they're mixing it with exactly the right amount of water or whatever else they're putting it in. And sometimes they are chewing it up 
or mixing it and spitting it out of their mouth, oftentimes using a, a small bird bone as kind of a straw. So we're talking about like a difficult thing to do. Like when, whenever we talk about painting, we think of it as being sort of this, this easy task, this, you know, it's just artistic, but there would have been a lot of work going into just preparing it, you know, just having it uh, ready to go. And so then walking in a kilometer and kind of leaning over this cliff and, and blowing all this stuff and figuring out where to put your lamp. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, so because of that, I think if they were willing to put in that much work, they're probably thinking a lot about their colors. And when you're looking at images on panels um, where we do see kind of colors interacting with each other, um, especially, I mean, I mean, I do obviously Castillo is my site that I, I love very much, but if we're talking about other sites as well, um, things like Lascaux or Chauvet, um, where you're really seeing the colors interact with each other on a single image or a single panel, um, they really had to, had to have thought that out really well. I mean, even just with a singular color, they would have had to have thought it out really well to be able to go in and do this. Like it just, it's, it's mind blowing actually in a lot of ways. So I don't think any of it is sort of accidental. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you have any just in your head of um, any examples at El Castillo Cave where there were two colors interacting? Can you kind of just describe what that looked like? Um, the content, I guess. Mostly at El Castillo, it's sort of superimpositions. Um, so different images being kind of superimposed on each other. Um, you're looking at a lot of different colors, but I would say that more, it was more about the sort of style of the images themselves there, as opposed to, because at a site like, let's say, La, uh, Last Go, you're looking at a lot of horses and things like that, right? So we have a lot of, we have horses and things in El Castillo as well, but the style of the horses at, at Last Go um, is really particular in that the colors are really important to interact with each other. So there are some uh, examples of different colors in, in the same sort of image or panel um, at El Castillo. And one of them, um, but they're sort of bell-shaped and you can kind of see the different colors sort of interacting with each other there a little bit, but not, not in the same way that we see it at El Castillo. Um, we do have large panels of, um, so there's one, which of course I'm very interested in, it's called the Panel de los Manos or the Panel of the Hands. And um, it's got some handprints and it's also where the dot um, that was dated um, from Alistair Pike's team that I was talking about earlier um, to around Neanderthal times is. And there's also a couple of different outlines in yellow of a bison. Uh, so you can kind of see all these different colors. So we're talking black, red, um, kind of various shades of red and then also um, yellow on the same panel. So it's, um, it's definitely stylized differently than something like Lascaux, where you can really see the colors kind of interacting, but it's there, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah um, and then again, you just led perfectly into another question I wanted to ask. So this is also super speculative, but are there any theories about the handprints and why they may have been put there? Especially just considering like an outline of a handprint is kind of much more difficult than just stamping your hand on the wall. Yeah. So 
Um, there's a lot of different theories, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a little a little bit of my experience so that so that you can kind of know where I'm coming from here. But when I was in my undergrad, I was a research assistant for a master's student who was doing her project on on the negative hands. And uh, at that point in time, I don't know if you remember, they don't have them anymore, but Crayola had these markers that were, they basically worked the same way as um, what I mentioned with the bird bones. And they're, they're markers that are already ready to go and you blow through the hole and the, the, there's like a hole at the end you blow through and the, the markers would kind of spit paint for you is what we would call it. Um, so it would project the paint. And so part of what she did for her uh, master's project is she had children come in and of various kind of elementary school ages to see how difficult it was for them to put their hand onto a wall and then blow the paint around to make a handprint. Because we do have evidence in different caves of children, including in El Castillo, there's a child handprint. So we have children's hands that are negative handprints. And we know they were creating that by blowing the pigment around. And even with the Crayola markers, so we're not talking about creating our own pigment, we're not talking about using a bird bone, we're talking about something very easy to use, it was extremely difficult. It was extremely difficult. There was very rarely a time when a child didn't just spit all over themselves. It was not easy to get that pigment even out of the marker and onto the wall, but then around a handprint. Um, so thinking about it that way, I think it was probably when, when we're talking about children, I think it was a, a way for parents to bond with children probably. I don't think it was the children necessarily doing it themselves. I mean, of course, they might've been more skilled than our children in our days, <laughs> um, but uh, sometimes we see handprints in kind of a difficult spot. So it would have been really difficult for a child to have been able to reach up that far, for example. Um, so probably mommy, mommy or daddy goes, put your hand here and I'll make a trace around it. So that's one thing. The other thing is it might've been sort of a way of saying like, I was here, you know, like how we would write, like Amy was here on the on a wall or something, right? It might've been a similar way of doing that, like a way to kind of sign your name or to say like, here I am. Um, there's a lot of different theories about what it might've meant. Uh, it's really difficult to get into meaning when we're talking about such a, a long ago kind of time period. Um, but I definitely think if you really consider it, we're not looking at images of humans in that time period, except for that. That's the closest we have to any image of a human. And it must have been an interesting way for them to think about their identity and their existence, right? Like they're not, you know, when they're painting a dot or something, it probably doesn't represent themselves. So it might have been the first way that we're kind of starting to represent ourselves. And I don't really know how they would have conceptualized that, but I do think it's probably very meaningful. That's the first thing that they can see of themselves on a, on a two-dimensional sort of surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super cool. And 
I know it's like you've done so much research on these paintings and this cave. I'm just wondering um, what other stories um, do these paintings tell us about these people and how they saw the world, if you have any more that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, it's all extremely difficult to speculate about what these things might have meant. And I have a colleague who's actually kind of working on whether the non-figurative signs might have been somewhat figurative. Um, that we just don't have the right kind of conceptualization of what those things might have meant. And, it's, and it is really, really difficult if we think about trying to speak someone else's language, but trying to actually get into someone else's mindset. Um, and especially with that sort of, that sort of long ago, it's, I think it's quite difficult. I mean, there are certain things that we see. So things like um, there's a very famous image of a horse at last go, for example, um, that has this small, um, what we would kind of call a non-figurative sign. But when it's when it comes up, most of the time it comes up nearby an animal or on an animal and actually probably represents an arrow um, or a spear going into an animal. So we can see images like that and we can look at it and go, okay, this is probably something to do with hunting. We don't know why they were doing it. So there's been a lot of different theories about um, were they doing it as kind of a ritual in hopes of kind of increasing their hunt, um, having a more fruitful hunt, for example. Um, I probably wouldn't go that far as to say that because, I mean, when we're kids, we draw doggies all the time and kitties and like, you know, we have many different reasons for creating art um, even now. And it's it's very individual and it's also very kind of esoteric, very group related. Um, if you don't, you know, if you're not part of that group, it's difficult to tell. I, I think it's a lot to kind of speculate about whatever kind of rituals would be going into it. But Definitely, you can see sort of the stories of some of it. You can see that they were hunting and, and you know, at a site like Altamira, for example, in Spain, um, they were using the cave, uh, the shape of the cave to create, uh, to create a story about the bison. And uh, some of the images sort of look like they're, they're lying down in fetal positions, dying, for example. And um, I think they were conceptualizing things in a very specific way, but it's really difficult for us to say how. Um, one thing I would say though, sort of non-figurative signs come up all the time and the same non-figurative signs come up at hundreds of different sites in Europe and over and over and over again. And sometimes there's just entire chambers of dots, for example something had to have been going on there. It's not just, I don't think they're just kind of like, oh, this is a boring looking cave. Let's decorate it with thoughts. I think something big was going on. They're putting in all of this effort and there's a reason that they're painting in certain shapes. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're trying to depict a specific sort of thing that we, we can't recognize for some reason, but um definitely there was meaning there for them. They're kind of, they're thinking of it in, in some specific way where they're kind of going, you know, this is really important to get these dots here or to put these two shapes right beside each other, for example, at multiple sites. Um, 
it's really difficult for us because we kind of look at it and go, what the heck was going on here? Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's, it's just difficult. It's, it's, I think what we try to do as archaeologists at this point is, is look at it as it would have been really meaningful for them rather than what did it mean? Because it's, it's so difficult to get to that, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much um, for coming and talking to me about this. No problem. Thank you for having me. As someone who struggled in elementary school art class after being given all the supplies and a tutorial, I am extremely impressed by the initiative and innovation demonstrated by the creators of cave paintings. Working with minerals, water, and bird bones, they were able to create beautiful depictions of themselves, the world, and so many things that we are yet to fully understand. Neanderthals may have been among the artistically gifted inhabitants of this planet, but for now we cannot be sure, and the answer to that question lies in the future of dating and pigment analysis. I'm glad that the creators of the handprints were able to leave a lasting mark on anthropology and the world as whole and I hope we will never forget them. Thank you to Amy for talking with me, and thank you to all of you for tuning into this series. I'm so grateful that you took the time to learn alongside me.